You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this afternoon is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 5, 24 to 47. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor did his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. They are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another? Yet no effort to obtain, make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Let's also turn to the Belgic Confession, Articles 3 and 5. Articles 3, the Word of God. We confess that this Word of God did not come by the impulse of man, but that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, as the Apostle Peter says to Peter 1.21. Therefore, in his special care for us and our salvation, God commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit his revealed word to writing. And he himself wrote with his own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and 
divine scriptures. And also Article 5, the authority of Holy Scripture. We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith. We believe without any doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but especially because the Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they contain the evidence thereof in themselves, for even the blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are being fulfilled. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes in Lord's Day 6, question and answer 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism. From where do you know this? In other words, from where do you know about the only true mediator? Of the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets, foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only Son. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, when ever we as people hear something really astounding or really earth-shaking, we have this tendency to dwell on it. We talk about it incessantly, we analyze it from all different angles, we allow our minds and our thoughts to be filled with it, and it seems somehow to dominate over the, all the other stuff of daily living. Well, to a certain extent, you might say that the same applies to the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism when they are dealing with the matter of God's solution for human sin and misery. Then it seems as if they can't resist dwelling on it. First, they show us step by step in Lord's Day 5 how, how God finds this solution, what is needed, why we cannot supply it, why no other creature can do it either, and what the solution must look like. And second, they delve further into the unusual character of this solution, both the human aspect as well as the divine aspect. And third, they tell us about the only one who can meet all of the requirements of God's solution. And who is that? By none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He and He alone is that special mediator. He only is the only one who supplies what is needed so that we may escape from punishment and be received again into God's favor. Needless to say, then, when you look at this, you can see that the catechism has been busy or preoccupied with the same subject for quite some time. It loves to dwell on the person and the work of this most unusual mediator. Yes, and now as we turn to question and answer 19 of Lord's Day 6, we, we see that it's not quite yet finished dwelling on it. There's one more matter that needs our attention, and that has to do with the source, the basis, the origin. In other words, where in the world are you getting all of this from? How do you know this? How can you be so sure and so certain? 
And how can the authors of the catechism be so dogmatic and insistent about this? Who is to say that this is not some sort of human invention or fable? And the answer, well, the answer of the catechism is it lies in the Holy Gospel. It's the Gospel that reveals all of this. The Gospel is the source, the origin, and the root of our knowledge of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, then, let's look at the Gospel. I preach to you this afternoon on the following theme, the Gospel of our Mediator. We shall take note of its beginnings, secondly, its diversity, and finally, its climax. Well, beloved, for a moment, take another look at question and answer 19. And what is noteworthy here, first of all, is what it does not say, and then thereafter what it does say. The question is this, from where do you know all of this? So, Christian, where did you get all this from? We want to know something about your sources, and we we want to ensure that you're not just sucking this out of your proverbial thumb. Where is all of this stuff about this most unusual mediator coming from? The answer that follows surprises in a way, for we expect him or her to say, why, from the Bible, of course, or from the Word of God, but that's not what we hear. Instead, we're told from the Holy Gospel. Note the use of the word gospel to describe the contents of the entire Bible, a revelation of God. Now, I think that most of us know why the word gospel is used as a synonym for the Bible. If I ask my catechism students, they'll say instantly, well, gospel means good news, great news, the best news in, in all the world. So, of course, that's a, a fitting and apt name for the Bible. But you know, there's more to it. For most likely, the authors of the catechism got this particular answer from Mark chapter 1, verse 1. There Mark opens his account with the words, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark, you can read, uses the word gospel to describe everything that he's going to say and write about. Mark is about to relate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, of course, raises the question, why does Mark use the word gospel? Why, for example, doesn't he say something like the beginning of the account or the story or the history or the events of Jesus Christ? Oh, beloved, he does so with a specific purpose in mind. Where you see, he knows, and the readers, the first readers of his day knew as well, that Every year when the birthday of Caesar Augustus rolled around, people would speak about his birthday as marking the gospel for the world. The birth of Augustus was deemed to be the gospel. 
It was considered to be the best and the biggest and the brightest thing that ever happened. So what does Mark do? He writes his gospel. And he says something right at the very start of the gospel that this is now the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of Augustus, of Caesar, of Rome, but of Christ, the Son of God. But still, that's not all that Mark wants to say. He's doing more than simply countering the claims of Caesar Augustus. In, in using the word gospel, he knew too that this was already in his time a popular word in believing circles. The Jews of his day would use the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, but a lot of them also would use the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the word gospel was often used. It was often used to translate the Hebrew of the prophet Isaiah. Especially when Isaiah described the beginning of a whole new era in human history and of a new and greater exodus that was coming. And so you see, Mark's use of the word gospel means really two things. First of all, it's saying to the world, we have better news than the news of Caesar Augustus. And secondly, it was saying there's a whole new era coming. An era already prophesied about long, long ago. About exactly how long ago? When did all of this talk about gospel or good news actually begin? When did the news of the coming mediator and of his coming kingdom start? Very early. Indeed, beloved, you can hear it already at the very beginning of time. Genesis 1 opens with the gospel, I dare say, of creation. The creation of all things. Genesis 2 follows with the gospel of the garden and the creation of the woman. But then follows the anti-gospel. The worst possible news, namely the fall into sin. Only it doesn't end there. Genesis 3 is not the last chapter in a very short Bible. No, for look, in, in Genesis 3 there is also gospel. First of all, There is gospel in the fact that that after man's rebellion, God can be heard walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And that means that God is not so put out with man that he retreats from the earth and removes himself totally from the presence of mankind. No, beloved, there is is gospel in the fact that God is still walking in the garden. And secondly, there is gospel in the fact that God is still willing to speak with man. When I grew up, one of my friends had a father. And whenever that father got really mad, he didn't speak. 
Sometimes he didn't speak for days, even weeks. Well, thankfully, God doesn't act in that way. He still speaks. And of course, it has to be said that what God has to say is not so nice. As a matter of fact, it's downright devastating. It's all about curse, enmity, pain, subjection, thorns, thistles, sweat, dust, and death. But nevertheless, he still speaks. And I dare say that a speaking God, even when he speaks about punishment, is better than a God who says nothing at all. But thankfully, however, in his speaking, there is more than judgment. There is also promise, the promise of a great victory. You find that in those very well-known words of Genesis 3:15. There God says, enmity is coming. And you know, that's good news. That's gospel. For God is saying there will be enmity between the devil and the woman. Instead of being friends, instead of being buddies, instead of being co-conspirators, they're going to be enemies. They're going to be at loggerheads. And that's a good thing. But there's more good news. For one day her offspring will produce someone who will come and, and crush and pulverize the head of the serpent. Someday someone's coming who's going to smack down the devil for good. In other words, the source of this evil, of this enmity that has infiltrated into the world is going to be dealt with most decisively. God promises ultimate victory already very early. And you know, if that's what God promises, you can still live. It was this promise that kept the saints of old going. And I think it's the same thing today, isn't it? Isn't it so that the promise of ultimate victory in Jesus Christ is ultimately what, what keeps us going as well? We know that one day Jesus Christ is coming back. And that when he does, he will usher in the great triumph of God and the blessed future of all of God's people. Life here below is often hard. Oh, I know physically, materially, we may have it good. We can buy and travel and dine out at will. But, you know, at almost any moment in your life, that goodness can evaporate. And you can find yourself in poverty and war, even in serious illness or deadly accident. This life becomes... And I never used to think that when I was younger. But, you know, this life becomes for all of us sooner or later in one way or another a veil of tears. But thanks be to God, there is still the gospel. 
And it's the gospel that keeps us going. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ triumphant that enables us to see through our tears. And this is the gospel that picks us up when we're down. Yes, and I dare say as well, this is the gospel that repeatedly picked up God's people in the Old Testament as well. You notice after mentioning paradise, the the catechism mentions patriarchs, prophets, sacrifices, and ceremonies. I think of Abraham, one of the patriarchs, the first patriarch, what kept him going? What kept him going all of those long, long years when really there was actually nothing to show for the fundamental promise of God of an heir? I think what kept him going was the fact that God spoke to him about blessing. That God made a covenant with him. It was the fact that God pointed him to the stars and to the sand. It was even the fact that God told him to circumcise himself and all the males in his household. And the result, beloved, every time that Abraham went outside and he looked at the stars in heaven, he was reminded. And every time he stood on the Mediterranean Sea and saw all the sand, he was reminded. And every time he looked at his own body, he was reminded. And of what was he reminded? He was reminded of the fact that he was part and parcel of God's great gospel plan for the remaking of all things. Hebrews 11.10 says he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Always looking forward. Always being reminded. And Abraham wasn't the only one. The people were as well. That's where the prophets figure into the picture. Every time the people were in danger of forgetting about the Lord, every time they were looking at the foreign gods as being kind of attractive and enticing, God would send them prophets. And they came in the form of judges like Othniel and Gideon and Ahud and Deborah and even Jephthah and Samson, would you believe it? They came in the form of men like Samuel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and all the rest. And what did the prophets do? Well, in word as well as in deed. Think of Jeremiah. They preached deliverance. They spoke about living humbly and daily with the Lord. About turning from sin and idolatry of the coming Messiah and the great Messianic age. You see, the prophets kept the people focused. They brought them comfort. They kept their hope alive. Listen to Jeremiah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called. The Lord 
our righteousness. And listen to Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities. From all your idols. And I'll give you a new heart. And I'll put a a new spirit into you. And listen to Isaiah. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strengths. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You see how the prophets encouraged, instructed, admonished, reminded the people? And you know, so did the sacrifices and the other ceremonies of the law. And I think they probably did that in a most unusual way. Take, for example, the matter of, of sacrifice. We, we read about that often as we go through the pages of Holy Scripture, but do you ever think about what some of that stuff actually entailed? Here you're an Israelite and you have a duty to regularly bring sacrifice to the Lord. And according to Leviticus 1, this entails the following. You select an animal. You drag the animal all the way, or the animal drags you all the way to Jerusalem. You go to the temple. You put your hand on the head of the animal. And you kill the animal. And then you slaughter it. You skin it, and you cut it into pieces. Thereafter, you wash the inner parts of the animal and its legs, it says, with water. That's only part of the procedure. As a worshiper, there are other things you had to do as well. Yes, and... You know, some of this is rather distasteful stuff. I'm no hunter, and I'm no butcher. And to do a lot of these things would make me gag. So why did God demand it? Why all of these gruesome sacrifices, and why all of those other complicated rituals and ceremonies? Beloved, it was all to teach and to remind you. To remind you about the seriousness of your sin. To remind you about your need for a Savior and Redeemer. It's all pointing ahead. Hebrews 10 says that it was to lead the people through the shadows to the great reality. It was to teach them that the sacrifices of animals can never make them perfect, but that one day God will supply the perfect sacrifice and He would make them perfect forever. Hebrews again says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once 
for all. And so again, while there is blood and death and sacrifice in the ceremonies of the Old Testament, there are also pointers, these constant pointers to Christ. Indeed, there are so many, many pointers that you cannot miss them. At least that's what we think. But is that true? Do you realize that the people who were the brightest, the best, the most trained, and even the most pious and the most theological missed the obvious? I'm thinking here of our scripture reading of John chapter 5. There you can note the Lord Jesus is busy, if you read the wider context, he's busy with the Jewish leaders, with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the intelligentsia, so to speak, in Israel. And what does he say to them? He says to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Obviously, these men, they knew the scriptures were were special. They knew that in them there was the secret of eternal life. They, they knew that in the studying of them, as Psalm 119 says so often, there is great reward. Oh, and I think that many of you know the same thing as well. Why do you read or try to read the Bible every day? Why do we teach the Bible in catechism class? In school? Why do we engage in in group Bible study? Of course, it's because we know the Bible is a unique book. It's God's book. It's God's book of life. But, beloved, do you realize it is possible to be in this book every day, to read it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, and to apply it and still remain dead? That's what the Lord Jesus says about these Jewish leaders. You're all Bible specialists. But do you realize you're all a bunch of dead Bible specialists? Now, how can that be? How is that possible? How can you be a specialist in the Bible and still... He's spiritually dead. Very simply, beloved, because they did not see the Christ in the Scriptures. Because they didn't see that all the Old Testament roads lead to Him and to Him alone. They became so preoccupied with this book that they couldn't see the forest for the trees. They didn't see the person that this book is all about. And so, beloved, there's danger here. 
Do you sense that it's possible to be a Bible expert and still be dead? The Word has to lead us. The Word of God has to lead us to the Son of God. Hebrews 1, very clear. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And what about Romans 10, verse 4? Christ is the end of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament Scriptures. He's met all the requirements of the law. And now His righteousness can become our righteousness through faith in Him. And so, beloved, realize... I realize well, the Bible is not an end in itself. It's meant to lead you to Christ. Its purpose is to bring you to Christ, the only true mediator, and to find in Him your wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So by all means, delve into the Gospel. But as you do so, remember to look for Christ. Look for pointers to Christ. Look for promises about Christ. Look for salvation in Christ. We are people of the book precisely because the book is all about Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior and Lord. And so read and meditate Discuss and apply. Fill your life with the good news of Jesus Christ. And that will give you light. It will give you peace. It will give you strength. It will give you all you need. And it will draw you into a deeper and deeper communion with your only Savior, your only Mediator, your only Deliverer, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.